This is the Do It Scared podcast with Ruth Sukup, episode number 87. On today's episode, we're talking to best-selling author Daniel Coyle about the fascinating secrets of highly successful groups and why it matters to you. Welcome to the Do It Scared podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Sukup, and each week on the show, we will talk about how to face your fears, overcome obstacles, and most importantly, how to take action and create a life you love. Today's episode was brought to you by Elite Blog Academy, our online program that teaches you step-by-step how to build a successful, profitable, and sustainable online business. Whether you already have a business or you're just thinking about starting one, EBA provides a comprehensive and proven approach to refining your message, growing your audience, and generating a sustainable revenue. With more than 11,000 students in 60 countries worldwide, we know exactly what works and what doesn't. And our goal is to help you create a business that you love. If you are interested in finding out more, we invite you to join our free training just for podcast listeners at doitscared.com slash EBA. Once again, that's doitscared.com slash EBA. Hey there, and welcome back to the show. As always, my name is Ruth Sukup, and I'm the founder of Living Well, Spending Less and the Living Well Planner, as well as the founder of Elite Blog Academy and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including my newest book, Do It Scared. In today's episode, we are chatting with bestselling author Daniel Coyle, whose deep dive into the surprising way that the most successful groups and teams function and thrive in his book, The Culture Code, offers a whole new way of looking at how we interact in group settings. You guys, I loved this book so much that I actually read it twice, and like all books I love, I bought it in audio, digital, and hardcover format. Seriously, it is that good. And the reason I'm so excited to talk to Daniel today is because I think that the understanding how to build a strong culture, whether it be within your own family or for your team or for your audience or your customers, it's such an incredibly important lesson for all of us, but especially for entrepreneurs. And to be honest, it's hard work to build a strong culture. It takes persistence and vulnerability and courage, but it's so worth it. And in the end, Courage doesn't mean we're never afraid anyways. Instead, courage is being scared, but taking action anyway, despite our fear. It's putting one foot in front of the other, even when we're not quite sure where that path is going to lead. All right, guys. So just a few more quick things before we dive into today's episode. First, as always, you can download the show notes for this episode by visiting doitscared.com slash episode 87. Once again, that's doitscared.com slash episode 87. Also, if you have not done this already, be sure to head over to doitscared.com to take our free fear assessment. You want to find out exactly how fear is showing up in your life, what your fear archetype is, because that's going to tell you where it's holding you back. And it's also going to tell you exactly what you can do about it. It's kind of a game changer, guys. It really is. And then if you have any questions or you just want to share feedback on this episode, please feel free to reach out. You can send me an email or message me on Instagram to let me know. 
All right. And now, without further ado, here is Daniel Coyle. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to the Do It Scared podcast. It is so great to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm a little scared. Is that a good thing? If I'm, I'm a little bit scared to, to be on the yeah. Do It Scared podcast? Well, All right, that's right. Kind of our motto around here, <laughs> do it scared. So that works. Perfect. I feel very at home. Well, that's good. That's good. So I would actually love to just start at the beginning um, before we jump into your book, which I have so many questions about. But I always like to start with the rough overview, your your general story, who you are, what you do, and how you got to be doing what you are today. Wow. In a nutshell. That's great. Yeah, it's a that's big really question. Oh, so you cool. have to Very condense cool. it all down. Well, that's, a, that's a good question because it is kind of a mystery um, in, in some ways. I, I, I grew up in Alaska, studied, um, studied was going to be a doctor, uh, took a left turn into journalism uh, at, the, at the last second and developed this career where I kind of study performance. I mean, I look at, I, I go around, I find people who are really, really good at what they do, whether that's music or math or art or sports or politics. And then I, I, I see what makes them tick. I sort of X-ray them. My dad was a was a radiologist. He looked at a lot of X-rays, so I think that's kind of that kind of governed the way I look at things. Like, what's going on underneath the surface here? There's something cool happening, and it's not magic, right? Great performance is not magic. There's a thing there. So, um, I've, I've written you know a, a lot in this in this space for like the last twenty years, and looking at, at what makes people good at what they do. Um, and I, I did a book about individual talent called The Talent Code, which looks at individuals. And that led me to this mystery of like, we've all been in spaces where there are really cool groups, really productive groups, groups where you walk into a restaurant or a school or a family or a business and things are different and things feel connected and better and faster and smarter. And like, what's that made of? So I, I end up kind of you know, chasing these mysteries. And it takes me like five years to, to, to write each one of these wow. books. And, uh, so I, I kind of go deep and go long and, um, and then get it. Usually each mystery leads to another mystery. So, um, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Just start asking questions and you never know where that's going to lead. That's true. And asking questions about stuff that's right under your nose. Like there are big yeah. mysteries right in front of us that are easy to overlook. You know, there's probably a, you know, there's a bakery in the little town where we spend our summers in Alaska. That's just incredible, right? It's this incredible bakery, and, and they're really good at what they do. But there's this feeling you got there, and you know, you can either accept mysteries like that, or you can say, like, "Hmm, what, let's let's check that out. What, what's happening there? What's yes. really happening there?" I love that. That's actually how "Do It Scared" kind of came about because. I noticed within all the other aspects of my business that people were coming to me a lot and talking about their fear, but it looked a little bit different for everyone. And Mm -hmm. so that's how I started asking questions and that ended up um, turning into this huge research project that ended up in my latest book. So that's that's an aside. We're not talking about that, but yeah, just funny as you were saying that, I was like, you know, you start asking questions and that you never know where that's going to lead. It's amazing. It usually leads to answers, but also so many more questions. It's so true. It's like, that's the, I mean, I wish I would have known that when I was, you know, 20 years old or even 25 or 30 years old, because (laughs) I always thought that answers were important. You know, I always thought that the answer was really where it's at, but that's, that's not actually true because it doesn't, it doesn't lead you places. No, it's the questions, but you actually talk about that a little bit in your book. 
the culture code, which, okay, is incredible. And I'm just going to put in all the shameless plugs for you because I have already listened to this book twice on Audible. (laughs) And I also have the hardcover so that I can go back and highlight all the important sections. But I literally find myself wanting to highlight almost everything in the book because it's so, so good. I, I find it applicable as a business owner and a boss who is building a culture within my team. I find it applicable as an online entrepreneur who has this whole community of people that I support online. And then I find it applicable just as a mom and as a wife and and how I can apply apply this sort of the lessons that you're talking about in my family. And so it just, it really truly gets me so fired up. Oh, that makes my day. Thank you very much, Ruth. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, um, you know, it is, it is, it is fun. And, and the, uh, I think the, at the, at the bottom is the, the idea that like, you know, these, these we're, we're social animals. A lot of our best experiences are when we're connecting, whether that's in our, in our teams or our, our in our businesses or with our families or with our friends. And it's like, we always think of that connection as just kind of dependent on chemistry or fate or whatever. And it's like, Actually, that's not true. There's like this language of behavior that's a, this deep human grammar that we share that that you can learn to get better at. And so you're not it's not left up to fate. It's like we got a little more control over the the sort of social uh, interactions than we think, and and the groups that we build and the chemistry. A little more control over the chemistry than we think. And it's um I'm glad you feel that way. That's that's, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I find it exciting, I think, and and really empowering to know, oh my gosh, I actually have some control over how this turns out or what the results might be or how I can improve this. And I think that's the really cool part of about it. And I I'm curious what made you curious about this particular topic. Was it some group that you observed or was there some particular story that you heard or something that got you asking those questions or it just sort of was the natural evolution of everything else you had been studying? Yeah, it, 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 was, it was a little bit of both, but I kept, I just remember this feeling, you know, I was, I was working on this, this book about talent, about individual talent. And I kept going into these places. There was one that really hit me pretty hard. It was a Russian tennis club. Um, called Spartak that had produced all these champions. Like they had produced more women champions than all of America for the last like 20 years. Oh, wow. And ridiculous. But there was a feeling when you walked in, like the, the, the sort of purposefulness and connection and energy. It wasn't a, like a top-down authoritative place. The, um, the every interaction was just like, like really electric. And I remember standing in that space and I wasn't there to look at like culture, but standing in that space and just kind of wondering like, whoa, I wish I could bottle this for, for my family, for the little league team that I coach, you know? Um, yeah. And so that mystery kind of got me going, like, what's that made of? And then when you reflect, you, so you do bump into that feeling in life occasionally um, with, you know, everybody's had an experience where they've been in a high chemistry group, where they've been in a super cohesive group, where they've, they've like, you know, where that group is added up to more. Like, that's, that's the thing. Groups either add up to more or they don't. And we've all been in those groups that add up to more. And, and when you start digging into, you know, I kind of dug into it from two angles. One was boots on the ground. Like I want to go be in these places and go visit Navy SEAL Team 6 and go visit the San Antonio Spurs and go visit IDEO and Zappos and on Pixar and all these other places. But the other aspect was the science. And, and there are these, you know, in, in psychology and sociology and organizational science, there's, there's a tremendous amount of there there. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of really interesting new science that's saying, yeah, that chemistry feeling you're feeling is not uh, magic. It's actually based on this sort of deep language of, of human behavior and grammar that, that we all can learn to speak. 
So that's what got me excited about it. Like, oh man, these places yeah. are all the same place, right? Like the yes. tennis club is like the bakery and uh, is like my family at its best and is like uh, the places I've worked when they're at their best. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. And so what were some of the biggest myths that you discovered about building a strong culture? The things kind of that, you know, we've all heard that you should be doing or the conventional wisdom. Did you, you kind of busted through some of those. And yeah. and then on the flip side, what did you discover were the things that actually mattered when it came to creating a successful culture? Yeah. One of the, one of the big myths is that it's kind of in the DNA of a group that is kind of fixed, that it's fixed to the identity of a group, right? Like the, the Disney is Disney and Pixar is Pixar. It's like, that is deeply not true. The, the culture is a moving target all the time. And, and cultures that are, that are actually many of the great cultures that I visited had become great because they had endured some kind of horrible crisis. You know, that they, that, that crisis was the crucible that had brought them back. The Navy SEALs were particular for that. They had some big crisis in the 80s. And out of that, you know, they had people die. They had bad authoritarian stuff going on. And out of that came this clarity around who they were going to become. So it's a, it, that was one, one big myth. The other big myth, the second, is that cultures are happy places. The great cultures are happy places where everyone agrees all the time. Like, that was kind of my perception going into it. Like, oh, wow. I'll bet at Pixar, like all the meetings are super positive fun. and really fun yeah. and everybody loves working there. <laughs> we always think about culture in terms of like engagement and energy and all these very positive things. That is deeply not true. And it is, there's two kinds of fun is the way to think about it. There's shallow fun, which is ping pong tables, you know, laughter, beer, um, yes. experiences that you have together. But then there's deep fun. Deep fun is when you solve hard problems with people that you admire. Deep fun is when you're circled upon something hard, doing, having that experience of everybody being shoulder to shoulder, wrestling with this thing and having little breakthroughs that bring you closer to some goal. That's deep fun. And that deep fun involves sometimes having conflict and tension. Tension in great cultures is not a negative thing. It's, they're great because they embrace the tension. Like being in a group is hard. Like you're solving really hard problems. If they were easy to solve, it'd be easy to have a boss who would just tell people what to do and they would do them. But all the easy problems in the world have been solved. If you're in a group, you're probably doing something really hard. And if it's really hard, you're not going to know the answer all the time. You're going to have to like make really hard choices. And so good groups are ones that name the tensions. They like are very in tune. They don't avoid them. Like if there's a tough conversation, they, they lean into that warmly and they lean into that in a way like we're going to have a really hard conversation about how, for example, how like innovative we have to be versus how traditional we should be. Like we, this is exactly the conversation that we should have, that we need to have. And we know how to have it because we, we respect each other. We listen to each other and we, and we have, there's a, there's a little phrase, uh, strong views loosely held. That's something that's common to good cultures. They have strong views. They believe in what they're saying, but they don't hold mm -hmm. on to them to the death. They are open to changing them. So they're having these vibrant arguments um, and, and embracing the tension and leaning in. To me, that was, that was like revelatory because um, it is really easy to sort of look at Pixar, look at Disney, or look at the Seals or, or look at the Spurs um, and think, oh my God, if when you walk in the door, all the conflict goes away. It's the opposite. It's how good are you at having those hard conversations, at having an atmosphere of warm candor where you can really wrestle with deep, hard problems together. 
Yeah, I love that. So was there anything specific that you saw these these amazing cultures and these amazing teams doing over and over again? Because I even think about that within my own team. And, and that's actually something that we talk about a lot, the importance of constructive conflict. But and and of and fighting for the best ideas and having that tension in there and yet it's i know from experience when you have people who want to get along and who like to be and who want to please and who have a high desire for harmony versus tension it's sometimes hard to get that so what what do they do that's different one thing is there's two things that come to mind the first is that they avoid they don't, they're not brutally honest. They're, they're, they mm. use warm candor, not brutal honesty. There's a temptation when you're having these conflicts uh, and, and having tensions. There's, there's a type of person, it's usually a man, who says, I'm yes. going to be brutally honest with you. And, and you can tell that they're kind of psyched. You can tell that they're actually, yeah. like, oh, I've been holding this in. I'm ready to let, you know, be brutally honest with you. Um, that doesn't happen in good cultures. What you find instead is warm candor, which is really sending two signals at once. It's sending a signal of connection and it's telling the truth. Brutal honesty. If you're, if you're brutally honest, you create a culture of brutality. But warm candor is, is different. Warm candor is where you send a signal like, I'm here. I'm connected. I'm telling you the truth. But our relationship is, is really at the center of this conversation. And as a good example of that, I saw at a, uh, at a restaurant. I was at one of Danny Meyer's restaurants. I studied. He's, he's this. It's like the Pixar yes. of restaurants. It's incredible. And And – they perform at a very, very high level. And I was there on a day when Whitney, who'd been training for six months, was it was her first day at the front of the restaurant, like as a full head waiter. And she'd been training for this moment for a really long time. And this was the moment. And right before the rest door opened, her manager leaned into her and said, whispered something in her ear. And I'm wondering like, ooh, that's a really cool moment. What did he say? What did he say right there? And what he said was, he didn't. he did not say like, you can do it. He did not say, I believe in you, right? <laughs> Which would have been a nice, yeah. warm thing to say, right? What he said yes. was, um, if you don't ask me for help 10 times today, it's going to be bad. Which is really wow. interesting. Like high yeah. candor, right? Like, whoa, you are going to make mistakes today. That's that's yeah. you're, you're not going to know what's going on. But think about like the other signal there. Like, look for me. Like, I'm here keep your head up. Like I, I, I expect you, I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to, I expect you to make mistakes. Of course you make mistakes. It's your first day. Um, look for me. I'm here to help you. So that's the kind of signal you have in these, in these things. Very real about the challenge she was facing. It was a really hard mm-hmm. day. She's going to make mistakes, but he's the manager saying like, I'm, you know, we're connected. We're a team. Let's work together to get through this and we're going to learn from it. And that, that to me is, is, is actually a perfect example of that line. He could have said like, you know, you're going to get your butt kicked today. Like that would have been true. That would have been brutal honesty. Brutally honesty. Right. And, and, and that, that would not have been useful, but instead that signal of connection makes, makes a difference. Interesting. So you talk about these signals all the time and you talk about the small actions that create big results when it comes to creating safety for people and and making them feel like this is a safe place and this is some I can I can be myself here. So yeah. what are what are some of those specific actions? I think that was a really good example, but I'm sure you have more that that but what are these different actions that yeah. we can take and these signals yeah, it, that we can give because yeah. It's, we can think of it like a signal. We can think of it like a, almost like a like a language, right? Yeah. I mean, there there is kind of this language. Another one, uh, one of my favorite ones is like to keep an open face. 
there's an expression, like actually a Navy SEAL commander was the one who told me this. Uh, he talked about your face is like a door. It's got, it can be open or it can be closed. And we know what closed looks like. It's, it's brow down, it's, it's jaw set, it's eyes narrow, it's, it's where you're focused on a task. But open is your eyebrows up, your eyes wide open. Your, your, the muscle that controls your, your forehead is called your, your uh, what's it called? Your frontalis, that's what it's called. And it's probably the most important muscle in your body because it, it radiates, it's, it's how we signal energy, attention, engagement. And when we open our face, um, and, and we're not always conscious of what our face is doing, but when we open, we send a really powerful signal of connection and safety um, and, and belonging, really. And if you think about the faces of good leaders, if you think about faces of the people in your life, watch what they do with their eyes. Watch what they do with their face. It's often, it's often really, really powerful. A, a, a second thing is, is kind, of, kind of a small thing, but I've, I've, I've realized just how big it is. Um, and it's, it's to invest in these threshold moments. You know, we decide really early in group interactions. Our brains are built to decide. Millions of years of evolution have made us really, really good at deciding whether we're in or we're out when we enter a group. In or out. It's it's not like this gray area. We walk into a new space. We have a few interactions with someone. We we read their body language. We look at their expert. We look at what they're doing, and we decide if we're in or out. Um, and I think one one tiny thing that is a really, really big thing is knowing everyone's name on day one before you interact with them and knowing a little something mm. about them. Day one comes and new people are around. If you know their name, if you recognize their face, and in these days, there's no excuse not to know that beforehand. The information is out there. Um, you have an opportunity to really make a deep, lasting connection with them. And if you don't, and if you're clueless about it, you have an opportunity to send a signal of non-safety. So those are two tiny things, but, um, and I'll, I'll add a, I'll add a, a third one, which is to obey the 34 times rule. And the 34 times rule is based on some research about requests. Um, they, we, we make requests all the time in life. And this, this study looked at whether it was more effective to make them in person face to face or to make them uh -huh. digitally. And, We've always got the opportunity to do either. And what the study showed is that you're 34 times more likely to get a yes when you make a request face-to-face. -face. So we know we know face-to-face -face is more effective. Like everyone knows that. That's why you use Zoom in your group. Uh, yes. It, it matters. Yep. It matters a lot. <laughs> but to actually um, – it's it's not twice as effective. It's not four times as effective. It's not 10 times. It's it's 34 times. It's way more effective. So wow. to default to face-to-face -to -face as often as you can um, ends up being a really powerful, simple thing that, that you can do to improve safety and connection and belonging. Which is a big deal in a digital age because email and text messages and very little is actually face-to-face -face anymore. So – that's kind of, that's really incredible. I, I think the thing that made me nervous when I was listening to your book multiple times, um, and maybe this is just the high achiever part in me where I, I felt like, oh my gosh, if I'm working on building safety, then how easy is it to screw it up? Like what if you, you know, miss some of the signals and you signal not safety? Does it ruin everything? Like how do you, do you have to start all over? How do you know, like once safety is there, is it always there? And once it's not there, is it never there? Or how does that, like what's, what's Think the... of it as a candle. <laughs> Think of it as a candle that you have to light and relight. Huh. 
you know, you you always our brains are built to continually monitor. So you can establish safety in that first meeting by knowing somebody's name and, and do that. But you know what? It's going to go out. Like you have to reestablish that. And if you lose it, you can reestablish it. So it's not fixed. We're constantly monitoring our environment. We're constantly looking for that. And that's why smart groups are really, really good. For example, there's a habit that you see in 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 really in a lot of really good groups that they just have a lot of little get-togethers like town halls, right? Where everybody uh-huh. gets together and it's Friday and let's have a conversation about what's going on and bring everybody up to date. And it's like if if you and that sort of thing, as simple as it is. Um, the act of bringing everybody together, whether that's on a Zoom call or whether that's in person, ends up being a very powerful thing. And the other area where this happens a lot is around food. You can see how you know food is, is such a basic human thing to circle up and break bread together and to talk and connect um, ends up being a really powerful signal where you can sort of relight that candle. So it, it's, it's not it's it's, sometimes it is permanent. I I think sometimes you can blow it so drastically. Um, If someone shows up on the first day of work and nobody knows their name and there's no desk for them and they obviously didn't prepare for it and don't know them from Adam and there was nothing done, um, maybe you could permanently damage that relationship. But if it's small missteps, if it's tension, um, most of the time those tensions are opportunities to to reconnect and, and make that. So don't think of it as a as a like all or nothing light switch, think of it as as like this campfire that you have to keep on putting some fuel into and putting some oxygen into. Um, and there are moments in every group where you have that choice between getting the project done and being productive or sort of taking a second and tending to the people and checking in and seeing how they're doing. Um, and good groups always, I think, default to the second one. Um, and, and put people uh, a little bit higher in than productivity sometimes. Um, and I think that's exactly for this reason of you got to kind of keep the campfire lit um, and, and, and continually send that. You're never done sending that signal. You know, you're never done with your right. family. You know, you're never done with your, with your best friend, right? I mean, you, you are continually coming together and, and relighting that flame. Wow. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like operating under this paranoia that if I get it wrong, it's like you're dead. You're dead. You screwed it up. Now you yeah. got to start all over. And right. yeah, so that right. that does make it feel a little bit more a little bit more manageable. But I am curious. You kind of touched on this, but I don't know. Based on based on your book, I'm really curious about this. So as as the owner of a company that's mostly virtual. We have a, we do have a home office here in Florida where three of us work, but the rest of my team is virtual. So we all of our meetings are on Zoom. And I do have a requirement that every phone call, every interaction is always face-to-face on Zoom. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the study, studies you talked about in the book were about one of the the biggest, and I forget which one it was, but the, how the biggest predictor of success was how close their people's desks were together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Yep. Obviously you probably do. Uh, um, it got me wondering, do you think it's possible to build a really strong culture in a company with a virtual team? To a point, I think we're, we're in kind of a really interesting frontier with this because obviously it's impossible to all be together all the time. And a lot of groups are in, are in your, are in your position. Um, I happen to do some consulting for the Cleveland Indians and we're like, we're in the same position there too, because we've got teams all over the country, minor league teams and scouts and coaches. And how can we be together when we're not together? Um, and there's a few kind of rules to this, um, 
And and one of the rules uh, is that video calling and stuff like that is really can be really really effective if it is accompanied by sort of occasional face to face real life interactions uh, to root behaviors that, that it's worth making the investment to all actually be together, especially at the start of a project, um, or especially at the start of a year, the start of a cycle. Um, and then those video interactions can can kind of normalize and and serve as a as a really adequate uh, more than adequate substitute for face to face interactions because um, when they build on real relationships they're effective if you're trying to like only get to know people through video it's harder you just don't know yes. them you get so much more information um, and so much more connection being in real life the other kind of rule is that remote work can be really effective for productivity. Um, if you're just trying to get stuff done, if you know what you need to get done and you've got a list of what to do and you, everybody know, has a ton of clarity about where they're going, um, it's definitely, it's actually more productive to be remote. It's mm -hmm. less productive to be together. But when you look at creative work, if you're actually yes. trying to build something new, if you're trying to navigate something that you've never navigated before, it's better to be together. You know, there's studies that show that groups that are together talk about problems eight times more often than groups that are that are not because when you're together you're you're having that lunch and everybody's knocking around the idea and you're having common experiences that you can connect to the problem that you're facing and so um if you think about it in that way so you need to be remote is fine if you're strategic about it if you're if you and and there are also we're also in a brave new frontier where i've seen a lot of companies google among them where they they're, they're kind of keeping these video portals kind of open continually where you've got a, a team in Palo Alto and a team in New York, and there's a giant screen that shows the other team. And it's um, all the time. And they'll meet for coffee. Let's have a coffee. And, and they all kind of come together in their rooms and the cameras are connecting them. Um, Alice Waters, uh, the chef, has got uh, two restaurants and they're big screens in both that show what's happening huh. in the kitchen of the in other. In the other one. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's like th there's, there's new areas here to explore that I think are super fascinating because there's no way oh, we can yeah. all be together. So. No, we can't. But at, but at the same time, there's so much that, that you – talk about in this book that has me sort of rethinking. Again, my team, we usually get together at least twice a year. Um, and you're and you're right. It's invaluable to have that face-to-face -face time. That's what really builds the relationships, especially if we're working on a project or solving a problem together. But I now I think, oh my maybe we need to get together sooner. But it's so funny when when that you mentioned Google because the the part about the desks being close together made me actually think of my niece who works for Google. And she she was in the New York in the New York location and she gave me a tour last time I was there visiting her. And they their group has their desks very close together. And she's in the she's in the creative lab. You know, she's they're there to think and brainstorm ideas off of each other. And they all do. They have I was like, man, your desks are all very close together. Is it always <laughs> like this? She's like, that's how we do it. Oh, and awesome. now it makes so much sense. They've probably read your book. <laughs> ah, that's great. They're good. Okay. So I think I have one more question. Oh yes, about about vulnerability. Um Ooh. Because you talked a lot about the, the vulnerability and how surprising it was that how necessary it is for building trust and cohesion. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Why is that so particularly important? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Well, when, you, when you go to these groups, and I, for the book, I was visiting these you know very high-performing groups, you know, Navy SEAL, Pixar, places that are, that are pretty good at what they do. And I kind of expected when I got there that they would be confident 
that they would be um, really, really uh, sort of, sort of, you know, secure in what they were doing. And but when I got there, I found that they were, you know, continually sending these signals of like, hey, I might have this wrong. I, I, I screwed that up. Um, in fact, there was a Navy SEAL commander who said the four most important words a leader can say are "I screwed that up," and that was shocking to me. Um, and and but really revealed a, a super important counterintuitive truth, which is um, signals of vulnerability are how we share information. That every group, if a group is hiding information from each other, if a group is preserving status, um, they will not connect as well as a group that is that is knocking down status and not managing it and that is sharing information. And groups that are that are that have got these sort of habits of opening up and sharing risk and and being vulnerable. Um, in fact, there are some really sort of simple and cool experiments that show these little moments of vulnerability actually build cohesion. You know, we normally think about mm -hmm. vulnerability and trust like I'm going to build up some trust and then I'll be vulnerable. Yes, but it doesn't but work that way. We've got it exactly wrong. You know, we've yeah, got exactly backwards. It's these moments. Uh, it's called a vulnerability loop, and it's when when two people or more. Are, are open about what's really going on and share risk and are open and signal that with their behavior, not with their words, but with their behavior. When leader says, I screwed that up, that moment gives everyone permission to speak and share and, and share information and build a shared mental model about what you're doing together. And, and it actually creates cohesion. There's experiments that show when you create a little vulnerability loop that the group will subsequently have a little more chemistry. They'll, they'll perform better. They'll cooperate better. They'll be more productive. Um, and we've all experienced that in our lives, like those mm -hmm. moments where you where you're in a in a bad spot with someone, um, where where you know someone admits that it's their responsibility, where 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 everyone knows where they share their weakness and their secret, and their and everybody shares risk. You actually see performance go up. But in in work in the work environment, um, that that can be hard to achieve. So a lot of groups have got these kind of habits. They're almost like athletic habits because but they don't involve physical pain. They involve emotional pain of like being open. And, and the SEALs, for example, have this something called an AAR. It's an after action review. It's, they do it as soon as they finish an operation, as soon as they finish a training run. They circle up. It's about six people. And it's led by the lowest ranking uh, enlisted person. And they, they talk about three things, where they screwed up, what they did well, and what they're going to do differently next time. And it's really hard to have that meeting. It's like if you do something really hard with your team, it's really, really hard to sort of circle up and say, um, oh, this is where we all screwed up. This was bad. Um, this, this didn't work. Uh, but willing, be, being willing to do that and owning it and having shared accountability um, is, ends up being the thing that, that ignites that sense of connection and cooperation and performance in the end. It's about sharing accurate information. Um, so that vulnerability, which we often think about in terms of like – you know, inner strength and character, and which is true. It, it is hard to do that, but it's actually kind of more like a skill. It's like, can your team build this kind of painful habit of like getting together and telling the truth? Um, and, and the more you do it, the better you get and, and, and the more normalized it becomes. So it ends up being kind of quietly the most important, difficult moment, almost like you know, you know, when you go to the gym, no pain, no gain, you know, that burn that you feel yeah. is actually the feeling of getting better. And, and it's the same thing in group life. 
like that emotional burn you feel of being vulnerable together is actually the feeling of getting better together. And I think there's so, even as you're talking, there's so many different applications of that where I, I think about, I mean, with your kids, if you can show vulnerability with your kids and be honest when you do, when you screw up and the way that that builds the relationship and gives your kids the courage to, to share back with you and be, and take, take responsibility and be vulnerable with you. And, and I think about too, I have, I talk a lot about the importance of accountability partners and, and finding people who hold you accountable. But I think with that, and I always say this, it's not like you can walk up to somebody and say, Hey, you want to be accountability partners. It doesn't work that way. First, you have to build trust and, and the trust comes from being vulnerable. And if you can't first establish that, you're not going to have somebody who's going to be able to hold you accountable because you haven't built up that kind of exactly what you're talking about, the the warm candor versus brutal honesty. You don't want an accountability partner who is brutally honest. Right. You want somebody who will be honest with you, but who also has your back. And that is that relationship is only built through that vulnerability piece. I like that you mentioned the, the parents thing. There was some parenting advice that I got from oh, some of the, one of the leaders that I visited, um, who pointed out, like you know, there's that question that every parent asks at the uh, at the end of a day around the dinner table. You ask your kid, you know, how was your day, and and that that like has never led to a good conversation ever. No, like in the history no. of mankind, it's never led to that. The history of humankind, um, and uh, so he suggested instead, um, you know, lead with uh, something that you screwed up at today. Just tell a story, and that's it. Just kind of start the vulnerability loop a little bit, and make it possible to have those conversations, and and, and send that signal with your behavior of, hey, this is huh. uh, let's let's share some share some good stuff here. I like that. We actually play a game that we call high low interesting. That's kind of a little bit like that, but maybe we should, I, sh- I will, with my lows, I'll be more intentional with that with my kids. But our game is high, low, interesting. So we have to share a high and mm-hmm. then we have to share a low, something bad that happened, which is where you start to op- get that opening up a little bit about the not so good things. Yep. And then the interesting is where, and I have a very highly competitive family. So the interesting is where we all compete to have the most interesting thing that happened. And then the winner, the winner gets a dollar because my kids were the same way. You ask them, how was your day? And you get nothing. But now (laughs) it's like an all out war to share the best, juiciest story. I like that. I'm interesting. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. Yes. Many people have. Go feel free. That's awesome. All right. So let's switch gears just a little bit because I'd love to um, hear a little bit about your own story and experience. But what is one of the hardest lessons that you've had to learn either in your life or your career? What happened and what did it teach you? Hardest lessons that I've had to learn. I guess the deepest lesson that I keep relearning. I haven't I, I haven't fully learned it yet um, because it's it just it's just, it's a hard one. But it's, it's kind of the... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I write books. I try to, you know, find interesting stuff, package it in a in an interesting way, um, do a deep dive, and then deliver it to people. And the thing that I keep, and, and, and as part of that, you end up, you know, kind of being uh, focused on yourself, on what you're interested into, and 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 what you're doing, and what you've discovered or uncovered or connected. And the lesson that I keep learning is that it's not about me at all. Um, how much. Every interaction is driven by the narratives that are in the heads of other people, by the by the needs that other people have. That 
it's in a very deep way. It, it's just not about you. Um, and, and I can be totally fascinated by all kinds of things. Um, and that, and, and it, it, it only matters to the extent that those things that connect to the struggles that people are already having. So, um, that's wow. the thing that's taken time for me to, to learn and that I continually relearn that the most important thing you can do before a conversation, before writing a book, before deciding where to take a book, before having even this conversation right here is understanding the problems that other people have and trying to connect to those problems in ways that are useful. So you can call it empathy. So good. You can call it whatever you want to call that, that, that sort of act of like looking at other people and saying, what's, what's it like in your shoes? Like that, um, that's way more important than what I'm thinking about uh, or what, what I think huh. they're thinking about. So that that's kind of been something that's, that's taken, you know, time. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm relearning it uh, every day. All the time. Well, I think a perfect example of that is before we, we started recording, you said, you said, now tell me a little bit about, uh, about your audience and how I can best serve them. I mean that you, I, this is, what are we on? Episode 87 here, I think. I, I, I can count on one hand the number of guests who have asked me that before I've, we've done, we've gone into a recording. It's just not something that people naturally think about is there, because a lot of times you're nervous going into an interview. What am I going to say? How am I going to be perceived? What, what are people going to think about me? And it becomes very me focused, but you didn't, you actually focused on what, what do I need to bring to this to serve the audience, which is really, which is a really cool thing to see. Well, thanks. It, it, it also, it, here's the other thing. It's easier. <laughs> like, like it's I know, actually, right? It's actually <laughs> easier to live that way and think that way than to sort of, oh my God, I have to arrange my whole like wedding cake of ideas and, uh, and get them all ready so they can be presented. Um, no, it's it's way easier to just sort of say, "Tell me, tell me, tell me," and and and, and that's and that's it's just a, it's, so it's, true. Yeah. It is that is so true. And I because I I work with a lot of bloggers and business owners, and and that is something that comes up again and again. You know, I'm nervous about this or what. I I don't want to put my stuff out there. I work with authors too. I don't want to put my stuff out there because what are people going to think? And if you can turn that around into what are what what's the one thing I can bring people? And that's the advice that actually my accountability partner gave to me years ago when I was nervous about speaking. She's like, you think about the people out there and what you have to give and not about how you're being perceived. Yep. And that has stuck with me ever since then. But I can tell that, that that's a lesson. You might still be learning it, but you're doing, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> So I do have a couple of questions specifically about mm -hmm. your journey as an author, because I do work with a lot of authors and you've written quite a few books. So how did that all happen for you? And do you have any specific advice that you would share with someone who's just getting started? What mistakes would you want to help them avoid? Wow. That's good. That's a good question. Um, it happened for me in kind of a, I don't know. I, I, I was, I was about to be a doctor and I made this turn into journalism at the last minute. And as a journalist, um, you're always on the lookout for, um, for big stories. I guess I, I wrote some magazine stories and, you know, the first things were like backpack reviews and things like that. And I just had this, um, curiosity to go deeper and deeper and found myself coaching a little league team in a housing project in Chicago, uh, and ended up, uh, you know, being dumb. I would say, I would say one piece of advice is, is be naive. Um, you know, there's, there's two, 
that ends up being a source of great fuel. Uh, you know, we started this conversation by talking about kind of mysteries and big dumb questions. Um, and each of, you know, I've written, I think seven books at this point. Um, and each of those has been kind of drawn by a big dumb question and, and questions that have got enough depth and mystery to sustain. And that's the, where the connective piece comes in, where, where they're, they're deep questions. Um, you know, I started that, that, that book about baseball in the inner city, you know, a nonfiction book about a team that I was coaching and, and it was driven by this question of like, what happens when, you know, white middle-class people go into the projects and try to form a baseball team in, in 1992, um, <laughs> right. When Rodney King riots are happening and all this, these, these race things that have never, these race issues that have never gotten, I mean, still haven't gotten any better, but what happens in an experiment like that? That was kind of driven by that question. So, that's one to kind of really look for the for the big the big dumb question that you don't know the answer to um, that you deeply don't know the answer to. So that that process of investigating the question ends up ends up driving you. Um, and and the second thing I, I guess I would say is uh, to really uh, it, don't be a solo person. You're right. Writing is is a very solo enterprise, but you will find that. Um, as, as time goes by, having a team of people um, to guide you through conversations, to be account, to be your accountability partners, um, the risk of doing any work by yourself is that you disappear down a rabbit hole and that you end up chasing your own intuition to places that you don't think you should end up. Uh, I did that definitely. I tried one time. I tried to write fiction. We were living in kind of a remote part of Alaska, and I was thinking, oh, I'll just write a novel. Well, it turns out writing novels is really, really hard, and I, it was a sport that I wasn't really great at. Um, and I, I ended up, you know, like doing it, but it's, it's, it was a, it was a really hard couple of years. And I wish I had had somebody early on be like, yeah, I don't know, if this is working. Um, so, like having people to course correct and consult with and give you give you real feedback. I mean, the idea that you've got all the answers is not true. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. temptation. There's kind of a a narrative around writers that like, oh, Hemingway, all this kind of genius narrative that we that we hear, right? Like, oh, there's so yes. many geniuses, right? Nobody's a genius. I mean, and if, and if you're, you know, the most beloved books, even like To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Harper Lee, right? Go, there's a new book about her that's super interesting, but, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird was only published because she had this little group of people that guided her and helped her and 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 this team was what created it and once she lost that team she never wrote again like she, hmm. she never she never produced this genius writer never produced uh, anything in the rest of her life uh, and she wrote to go mockingbird at age like 42 so um you know she spent 30 years writing nothing because she was by herself and she had a lot of other a few issues too but but it's still this this myth of the genius writer i think ends up being a huge handicap to people when it's really a collaboration um, between you, your friends, your editors, your readers, um, and and to really embrace that that those relationships and that process of getting better together, uh, yes. as as being at the core of of what you do, not just that you're some kind of a you know Hemingway writing your genius stuff in a cafe somewhere. I love that. I know. And I hear some people, you probably hear this too. I have people tell me all the time, well, I want to be a writer and I want to write, I want to write my book and I've been thinking about what I'm going to write and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about it. And I think if you want to be a writer, you just got to write something and then let it come out and let it be bad and get feedback and get better. And 
and keep going. It's it, it, you can't ever be a writer if you're not writing. That's right. That's really true. And then if you're not stealing, you know, because there's, yeah. there's there's this other sort of damaging myth that's kind of connected to the genius myth, which is like that you have to come up with your own voice and that it has to be uniquely you and and, and know what you have to re- deep, reach deep inside yourself. And that's that's complete baloney. Like every good writer started off mimicking people they loved. And, That's and so true. gathering things. Oh, I like to little of this, a little of that, a little of this. And, and they mix those flavors. But it's more like a chef, you know, where you're, you're, there, there's recipes. Everybody makes, you know, kind of the same stuff, right? You make, you make a good salad, you make a good steak. But it's the way you mix those, those um, ingredients together. And, and don't feel like you have to come up with them yourself. Find the stuff you love, underline it, type it, focus on it, figure out what makes that stuff work. And then it'll, be, it'll become your own. You know, over time, overcome your own. But, but the idea that you need to come up with it by yourself is a very damaging myth. That's great advice. Well, and that sort of leads me into my next question because you studied individual talent and you studied groups. So, which which is more important? Um, you know, they both they, they, they sort of both are. You know, it's sort of like you know, if, if it's sort of like two. You know, you've got. You've got trees growing in a forest, individual trees, and then you have the whole forest. I would say like for overall sort of impact, I mean, I would say the culture stuff ends up kind of having more impact, bringing more um, happiness to people. It's more, I think it's a little more accessible um, in some ways um, because it's, it, it's kind of the deeper platform on which the individual skill can grow. Like just to, you know, for example, if we're going to use the writing as an example, um, yeah, you know, the individual skill of becoming a writer, super important, um, in, indispensable. Um, but man, that can be supported and accelerated by getting into a group that, that, so well, they sort of work together. They work together. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. It's like an individual cell life and then organism <laughs> life, right? So <laughs> it must have been a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Both, both A and B, all of the above. <laughs> All right. So last couple of questions. First, what are you working on right now that has you super fired up? You have any big, big goals, big projects on the horizon? Um, you know, still doing the, doing the work with the, with the Cleveland Indians, which has been really fun. I'm doing a sort of the next big book will be, I think about the power of story. That's the most powerful narrative is the most powerful drug that we uh, on, on the planet. And, and so what is that made of? How does that drive us? How does that, um, you know, we're all kind of living a narrative. We kind of, that's how we experience life. Um, and so I'm really interested in, in digging into that. Ooh, and then I'm going like to have to do a follow-up. Also have to do another book that will be, um, it'll kind of be a, 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 an add-on to the culture code. It'll be called the culture playbook. So it'll be kind of a lot of tips and kind of simple things you can do to build culture. Awesome. Oh, I like that too. And do you have any dates for those? Not yet. I wish I did. Um, yeah, it'll be a little bit. I need to, you know, as, <laughs> as, as we said, I, I don't work fast. So. <laughs> All right. So this is my final question. The question we ask everybody who comes on the Do It Scared podcast. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received and why? Wow. Um, I'd say the best piece of advice, uh, I'd sort of say, um, uh, my dad always used to say, make good things happen. Um, and I think that that's, it's a very, you know, I never, I never thought it meant anything for a long time. Like, of course, good things are going to happen. But, 
actually each of those words is uh, is really powerful, I think, you know, to make them happen. It's not an accident. You really have to take control and make sure that they're deeply good and uh, that they are things and that they actually happen. So to me, that, that's been something that stuck with me. That's awesome. I love that. I I always love it when people have advice from their from their parents. It's like, man, you, th- you <laughs> it gives me hope as a parent right. to think Someone's all listening. these things that I'm telling my kids right now. Someday they're not sinking in today, but maybe someday. I think you're right. I think that stuff does stick. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, it was so great to have you on the show. Anything else you want us to know, and then let us know where we can find you online. Cool. Yeah, I have a website, danielcoil.com. That's got some some links and books and stuff like that and um on a few of the usual sort of platforms though not not particularly active uh but uh but i'm out there and um no it's been been a real pleasure ruth thanks for your great questions and uh let me know if i can ever be of help thank you so much all right so don't forget that if you would like to get all the show notes for this episode along with all the links to everything we just talked about you can find it all at doitscared.com slash episode 87. Once again, get all the show notes and the links on our website at doitscared.com slash episode 87. And while you're there, be sure to take that fear assessment to find out how fear might be holding you back and go take our free training at doitscared.com slash EBA. And then before we go, I just want to say as always that I love hearing from you. So if you have any questions about what we talked about today or any other topics you would like to see addressed on the Do It Scared podcast, please feel free to reach out either via email or just by messaging me on Instagram. And that about does it for this episode of the Do It Scared with Ruth Zuka podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you liked what you heard, I would love it if you would post a review on iTunes. And then while you're there, be sure to subscribe to be notified of new episodes. And speaking of upcoming episodes, be sure also to join me next week for another very intense one-on-one coaching session. Guys, you never know what's going to happen, but you do know someone's going to get roofed and it's going to be good. And I will catch you then.